This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we support design engineers and make lightning protection easy. You're listening to the Struck Podcast. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And here on Struck, we talk about everything aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. All right, welcome back to the Struck Podcast. On today's episode, we're going to cover in our first section a bunch of stuff on Boeing. Obviously, the Senate uh, just released their big report, uh, rather scathing report, on some FAA and Boeing perhaps improprieties. So we'll talk a bunch about that today. In our second segment about engineering, we're going to chat about the HY4, uh, which is a vehicle that just made its uh, first flight over in Slovenia. It's a hydrogen fuel cell powered hybrid electric vehicle or aircraft. So we'll talk about that. And our EVTOL section, we've got a couple of good things, uh, a little bit on Joby uh, being approved by the Air Force, an update on jaunt air mobility, and also some interesting news about LA creating a partnership for urban air mobility to do some planning uh, about how that might come about in Los Angeles. So Alan, first thing here, obviously the Senate came out with a pretty big report and uh, very far reaching as well and wagging their fingers some more at Boeing, who, as we were just talking about off camera, can't stay out, can't stay out of the news. Um, but this is raising questions about impropriety and reaction time and all this different stuff. But um, what are the key takeaways for you that are really raising eyebrows? Because I know there's a bunch. Well, the report covers so much territory involving the FAA and, and some part Boeing, some part other airlines, uh, uh, not necessarily affiliated with Boeing in a sense, and Southwest Airlines, because Southwest is a big user of, of 737s, mm-hmm. obviously. Yeah. But it just seems like any time that uh, there's some issue involving the FAA uh, that didn't go the way that a particular employee wanted to go, that, that ended up in this report. So it's like a... Uh, a, a means of kicking the FAA around uh, from a congressional side, and it, it 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 doesn't really have a point. It just seems like there's just a, a series of a, of um, disgruntled employees slash uh, uh, maybe some poor performance on some, or maybe maybe there are some employees looking the other way at the FAA for p- particular aspects uh, that just get accumulated and and, and stuck in a report and then issued as, as hell, you look how bad the FAA is, that is not uh, a, a valid exercise. It doesn't help anybody. There's, there's no one that's going to read this and go, oh, yeah, well, then we need to correct ABC. That's not what's going to happen here. And in fact, during some uh, part of the report has to deal with uh, uh, congressional subpoenas and employees of the FAA slash DOT, Department of Transportation, not showing up for or not responding to the subpoenas, and maybe there's some blackballing or uh, obfuscation that's going on here. That's the that is just that's first of all, it's mind reading, and, and second of all, it's not backed by facts. And so you would hope that a Senate report would be backed by a lot of facts. And if you ever read a lot of Senate reports, you realize there's just hardly any facts in most of them, that a lot of it is, is sort of a mind-reading event uh, put together by staffers. So there's there's a lot – if you read through this report, and it, it is extremely long, and it lists all kinds of people 
in it uh, that and it makes accusatory claims about a lot of people and their intentions. Uh, but at the end of, at the end of it, it doesn't say who wrote it, right? It's issued by the committee. Well, the committee is made of people, and it's mostly probably made of staffers. And the staffers wrote this report. There's no senator who sat down and typed any part of this thing. So who are the staffers who wrote this? And why is their name not on it? Because if you're willing to call out an FAA employee, or you're willing to call out an airline employee, or you're willing to call out a DOT employee or anybody else, then you got to put your name at the bottom of it and, and pony up. Because if you're going to accuse somebody of, of some sort of malfeasance or causing the death of others, then you better better put your name to the bottom of it and explain explain yourself, right? Because you know, Senate ex, the the Senate and the Congress um, exclude themselves from lawsuits, so they can write whatever they want, and no one gets to say yeah. boo about it. Right, so you're defenseless. So you're really kicking a defenseless person, and that's not the way the American system is supposed to be set up. Right, you can make an accusation, and the other person can say, "Hey, you know that's 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 slander. Let's go to court and find out." Well, you can't do that against Congress. They can write whatever they want. So, in, in yeah. a sense, you're, you you can't punch back. There's no way the FAA is going to punch back. How 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 are they going to do that? Right, and some and some part of this is like uh, uh, a Boeing employee told a flight test pilot to when they're going off and sort of do a what i would consider to be like a demo flight on the updated mcas system make sure you turn off the horizontal stab switch uh quickly okay fine but what does that have to do with anything did it have anything to do with the recertification of that system no evidently not uh did it affect safety in any, any matter Obviously not, because that system has been approved now by the FAA and EASA and everybody else in the world for the most part. So what's the accusation? That there's some sort of impropriety by this one employee, maybe? Isn't that sort of mind reading into this one person's head? Who knows why he yeah. said it or she said it? Who knows? I, I don't know. But why is it in the report? Yeah. And I don't, obviously, I've never been an air, airplane uh, simulator, but it says here that, you know, some pilots were told to you know, get right on that pickle switch mm -hmm. um, to help the reaction time in the simulator. So, right. in, in w when they kind of gave them that coaching, it would get them down to below the, hopefully below the four second threshold that they established. But pilots that were not given that typically reacted in 16 seconds. And so it's uh, this article from Airways, uh, airwaysmag.com is saying that that clearly demonstrated how tests were manipulated. But like you said, if that's just part of, I mean, can't you be in the simulator and just be learning and someone, I mean, isn't coaching someone part of the learning process? I mean, is, is it meant to be when you're in the simulator, just do it and fail or don't? I, like, I don't, again, I'm not speaking from any copy experience whatsoever, right. so I don't know. But do, do you think but, there's a reasonable chance that this employee uh, did it so that the aircraft get it certified, uh, knowing that there was going to be crashes involved in the future? Is that is that what the what they're implying here? Because I think that's what they're implying. I think they're saying that the employee wanted to coach these pilots because the system wasn't safe, so they went. So Boeing, as a company, was trying to push out an yeah, unsafe system. I get what you're saying. Yeah, you're right. That's just guessing as to whether there is malintent. And I think right. What's what's the common saying that you know you should first assign incompetence to something before you you know assign malice to it like why would you assume this person is doing it to cover up a scandal when you could say they're just like maybe bad at their job and they're just right not doing you know they just shouldn't not be coaching thinking. them or they just or they just want them to hey i want this pilot to pass this test so i'm going to give them a little coaching rather than i want to give this test or this pilot coaching so that 
it covers up a huge problem that we have. Like, yeah, that's that's a fundamental difference. And like you said, that's trying to read the mind of the person and who was giving the coaching itself. And there's no context to the comment, right? It's it's completely taken out of context. It's 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 hearsay, really. I mean, somebody's it's heard secondhand also. So you don't know what the conversation was before, or the conversation after was. You know, any context in that conversation at all, but yet somehow it's it, it appears to be being uh, reported that it's some sort of Boeing conspiracy. And that, I find that to be one of the dumbest takes I've ever heard. If there's there's one thing that Boeing does not want is to is to have an unsafe system. They didn't want to have an unsafe system three, four years ago, whenever the MCAS system was developed. There was no intent to make it an unsafe system. There's no financial benefit to anybody to do that. They're, they're, Boeing makes zero dollars on crashes. It costs them a fortune. And, and clearly they know that, and they knew that years ago. So I, I, this sort of after the fact malarkey that goes on is just ridiculous, especially in particular to the pilot reaction time and that little aspect to it, which is, is a, I think is a valid concern. The, the pilot reaction time, the certain things that happen in the cockpit is always a disputed subject. I've been in those meetings. I've heard those comments. It, it goes back and forth. And flight test pilots will say one thing. Engineers will say another. There's a, just a general disagreement about it. But there were reports yeah. written year ago, more than a year ago, by broad agencies, uh, like multiple uh, uh, certification agencies around the world talking about pilot response time. That was a year ago. So this congressional, the Senate report comes out now and says, oh, they got this new controversy about pilot reaction times. No, it's not new. Everybody in the FAA knew. Everybody in the world and the certification authorities knew it was an issue. Pilot response time is a big certification issue because how much that determines whether a system meets the requirements or doesn't meet the requirements. If you give a pilot 15 minutes to react to a certain scenario, you're probably going to crash the airplane. If you give them one second, it's probably not enough time, right? So where's that happy happy medium at? And what is the requirements for training time for pilots? And how does that correspond to safety? That's the argument yeah. everybody's making now. And, and that's that's an ongoing, it continues to be an ongoing discussion. But I wouldn't apply malintent to it. That discussion is is always valid. And I think the certification authorities around the world said it a year ago, more than a year ago, saying, hey, we need to take a look at this in the particular aspect of a flight control system. What does longer pilot times, reaction times mean in terms of the complexity and the safety of that system? That's a, that's a valid thing to think about. But what's in the Senate report is just inflammatory. And it's just, it, the, con the Congress put one out a couple of months ago, basically the same thing. And it, it's just not helpful. And I, I it, it's, it when you, when we're in sort of this COVID environment and you see Congress flailing around, particularly now where they're talking about uh, trying to kick the economy into gear, and it's been going on for months, you know, and both sides are fighting, fighting, fighting. And you just think, why is nothing in Congress ever make any sense? And this is one of those things that just doesn't make any sense. All right. In our engineering segment today, we're going to talk about hydrogen power. So the HY4 um, is a hydrogen fuel cell powered aircraft, and that's uh, 
coming out of a consortium called Mahipa. So just an acronym for, I don't know really why I gave an <laughs> accent there. <laughs> but it looked, I mean, it looked like it deserved that accent maybe, but modular approach to hybrid electric propulsion. So we'll leave that, uh, we'll leave that in the show. But um, anyway, this consortium comprises uh, Pipistrol, Vertical Solutions, Com- Compact Dynamics, DLR, H2 Fly, and, and a number of others. Um, and they recently made a test flight uh, in Slovenia. And Alan, you're, I think, a little impressed with this plane. Yeah. Um, it's got an interesting design. It, it does look like one of the other Pipistrol designs where it's got the, it's pretty expansive and um, looks real sleek. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's got dual cockpits. So yeah. <laughs> what are some of the things that, that stick out to you about this uh, this HY4? Well, I, there's a, a couple of really good uh, videos online on YouTube that that show the construction. They must have done an interview in, in Slovenia with one of the local news uh, services that kind of walks through the, the different aspects of the aircraft design. But essentially, think of it this way. There's there's a fuselage, there's two fuselages uh, sort of out, outboard and in the center, there is a, 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 basically an engine pylon with a, a propeller on the front of it. So mm. the, the, the propeller's in the middle of this assembly. It's kind of like a P-38, but like backwards somewhat. But uh, the the system is sort of is set up such that there's, at least on one side, there's a hydrogen tank, a carbon fiber hydrogen tank in one of the fuselages. And then in the center pylon where the engine is, there's hydrogen to electricity fuel cells. And there's four of them. They're, they're one in front of the other. And then at the very front of that pylon is an electric motor. Uh, batteries are installed in, in both fuselages and it's sort of the left and right fuselage. So the configuration is very unique. Uh, and they, I'm not even sure why they came up with this design besides you have a place to store the hydrogen fuel tank and the batteries. Uh, mm-hmm. But they, they describe it as a four-passenger airplane, and, and four-passenger would be – it's not airline configuration by any stretch or corporate aircraft yeah. <laughs> configuration. You're sort of laying down this aircraft like a glider. It's very similar to a glider layout. It's, it's what mm-hmm. it looks like, a Burt Rutan design glider, advanced glider. Uh, but the con- concept works, right? They're, they're flying it. Uh, it doesn't look – I was watching them do some wiring inside the the fuselage, and like, ooh, uh, it's very home home built. And I would I, I don't want to describe it like that because a lot of the home built airplane airplanes are very tight aerodynamic and in terms of like aerospace quality. Uh, this I wouldn't say was right there. It was more kit kit build, home build, uh, back backyardish sort of setup. It had uh, flight displays yeah. in it and all kinds of electronics and things, but. Um, it clearly was an experimental aircraft from from that perspective, and probably rightly so. But uh, it is fascinating how much work is going into the hydrogen side, particularly in Europe, because in the United States, it's like totally not hydrogen. It's, it's totally battery-powered, which at some point, those two are going to collide. Don't you think that we're going to run into the hydrogen battery-powered <laughs> clash of the titans of some sort? At some point, they have to, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, it says here that the storage capacity is 10 to 21 kilograms of hydrogen. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess there's going to be simple math, whether, you know, 20 kilos of hydrogen or a battery with X capacity, which is more, right? Well, so. yeah, hydrogen clearly has more energy density to it, right, and can get you farther. Mm-hmm. And that's why we're starting to see uh, 
the the what were originally designed as battery powered aircraft going to some sort of fuel cell technology, either being hydrogen powered or jet A fuel powered, uh, so that the jet fuel is immediately converted into electricity through a little turbine, uh, which is sort of the way the Chevy Volt car was done several years ago where it had a gasoline turbine that created electricity which powered the batteries and the wheels and the whole thing so it's very similar setup uh you're not using the the fuel whatever fuel it is as 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 thrust you're just using it as energy to spin a propeller so an electric electric system uh, but I, I i think the really fascinating thing is in europe where things are tend to be closer together <laughs> where batteries may make a little more sense they're going to hydrogen in the united states which is much more expansive and the cities are further and further apart are going to batteries well won't fl- they won't fly as far so, so somewhere somewhere yeah, it seems backwards does it seem backwards yeah. like someone needs to sit down with a pencil and a calculator and like just figure this thing out right because i can't fly from dallas to houston there's that's a long ways an electric mm-hmm. vehicle i'm gonna need something that burns a fuel and if it's hydrogen fine but you're gonna need something of that sort because it just you can't do it i mean you could fly around dallas and dallas is big enough that you could you probably want to hop from one side to the other with an electric vehicle but you can't do those longer runs and that's where the problem is going to be is trying to do the longer runs well that's what i was going to ask you uh because obviously our, our third segment's about evtols but why are none of these designs like you know joby being the front runner why are none of them featuring hydrogen I mean, why, why is this model seem to not be on anyone's radar in the U.S.? Well, I think let's just talk about Joby for a second. So Joby, at least to this point, and, and there's not a lot of information coming out of Joby, but one of the things you do read is that they're trying to be very efficient with the battery usage. They're trying to get the range uh, extended as far as they can. So they're trying to mm-hmm. make the flight, the flight profile and the flight regime and the way they operate their aircraft to be as efficient as possible uh, because hovering flight is extreme energy burn. Any kind of helicopter flight is an extreme energy burn for batteries. So you want to get to forward flight as fast as you can. And in fact, that's what the Joby system is now doing. It's just basically going straight to forward flight, forward flight which is going to carry the maximum distance with the least amount of energy. Uh, but I would almost bet that most of these systems, most of these aircraft have a, have a means or provision to add a fuel cell technology to them. They would almost have to, because mm-hmm. you, if you're going to sell it in LA, great. If you're going to, if you're going to sell it in a larger city like Miami or Orlando or someplace like that, uh, you're going to need, and you're going to say you go to Orlando to Miami, right? That's a, pretty common route you're going to need more energy than probably what most of these battery powered systems will deliver today so there's there's going to be a coming <laughs> a coming moment where they're going to have to figure this out but that's one of the that's one of the things i've been watching for on all the evtol designs is is there a pod somewhere or the addition where they could put a pod on it which could include hydrogen because i think or jet a or some sort of fuel because mm-hmm. that's going to be key to, to have that versatility. Yeah, well, and the other thing that might uh, make this more interesting in the future is that there's been some recent announcements that Apple is gonna enter the electric car space. Yeah. And if Apple is just the second really high-powered company on battery technology, right? Yep. Then, you know, advances might be pushed even further. So, uh, obviously so much has changed in just urban transportation in general, whether it's on the air or on land. Um, 
you know, you got to expect that's going to continue on that sort of, um, you know, exponential curve where battery tech in three years might be incredible and way beyond what we even think, especially with two big companies like that working on it. Well, that's that's a, that's a really good question that you raised, Dan, is, be, is with the recent uh, battery day at Tesla, there is an expectation on the engineering side we're going to see these massive improvements in battery technology, and that didn't happen. Now, now, now there mm -hmm. were some pretty significant changes into the way they're going to manufacture batteries to make them less expensive and to increase their energy density, but uh, we didn't see that sort of transformable, transforming uh, presentation from Elon Musk, which then begs the question of, is Tesla or are Tesla and Apple now, and there's a couple others, weighing, weighing the battery versus fuel cell trade-off and are they going to get even more invested in like Tesla? Are they going to get all the way involved in batteries? Or are they going to hedge their bets like, like SpaceX and all that burning fuel things are doing there? Are they going to hedge their bets with an alternative fuel? All right. So transitioning into our EVTOL segment today, first thing on our, our docket here is some interesting news that Los Angeles is creating a partnership uh, to advance urban air mobility, which is an interesting uh, announcement. So basically they're talking about developing a scalable system to support urban air mobility within LA. Um, and so they're sort of one year plan and they said this is a one year project and it's gonna, they're gonna map out challenges, implement solutions to challenges, visualize a vertiport, hire a UAM fellow to advance public engagement. And, uh, you know, it'll have some financial support from uh, Hyundai Motor Group. This is all according to Aviation Today. Right. So all those goals and things that they're doing sound really nebulous and buzzwordy. <laughs> Let's find challenges and then solutions to those challenges. But it's, it feels to me reading this that like one year later, they probably won't have done anything. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. But that's sort of how I've. I read it. Like, mm. what are they actually going to do? They're going to they're going to draw draw a vertiport, visualize visualize a vertiport. <laughs> so we're going to have a nice team of graphic designers make a vertiport <laughs> on paper, and then like this might be the future. That's kind of what it felt like to me. It seemed real speculative, to be honest. Well, Dan, you're starting to figure this thing out. Yeah, no, I think you're starting to figure this out, which is it tends to be a lot of conferences and nice hotels and great meals and entertainment and campaign fundraising, which is what these eventually turn into. Because if there's not a dedicated fixed list of things that will get accomplished, then what's the point? And, and Los Angeles yeah. has, a, has so many other problems right now that are way more massive than uh, sort of the automobile highway infrastructure because very few people are honestly are on the highways in Los Angeles right now. Uh, haven't been on there for almost a year. So yeah. is this the number one priority or is getting their economy going again and stopping some of the opioid deaths that are happening in California? And cleaning up Skid, Skid Row and yeah. the terrible homeless problem they have. Yeah, they got this awful seems, problems, yeah. right? And, and urban air mobility is not in the top 20. I would be, I wouldn't even list it in the top 100 for Los Angeles right now. And why are they spending any time on it at all? It feels like, like we've seen on some... Uh, more recent news where the some of these uh, California legislators, mayors, whatever, governors have been doing things that they've 
prohibited regular citizens from doing. So he kind of feels there's that dichotomy of, hey, I can hobnob with officials that may be able to write checks to my campaign and everybody else has to eat cake. You know, it's it's, it's got that feel to it. I, I, you know, the thing that I thought was fascinating about it is you didn't see any of the what I consider to be the real EVTL companies involved in this at all. They're staying away from it. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that that just kind of smells fishy to me. It may be a little of a warning flare, like, "Hey, this is not on the uh, on the up and up, or it's going to accomplish anything that's worthwhile." Well, like we've discussed before, this at this point, it seems like this is way pulling the cart before the horse, where there isn't even a viable EVTOL yet. Like, right <laughs> again, like jo- Joby seems to have been like pulling ahead with their recent acquisition of Uber Elevate, mm. and just they've been seemingly raising lots and lots of money, which you've said is a necessity with certification, all that stuff. Sure. Uh, but like you've discussed before, why why visualize vertiports when we don't even know what the vehicle looks like and, and what right. it can do? Like, you know, we're going to draw them on the top of a building, but then is that even where these <laughs> things are going to be capable of landing? Like, is that even a reality? It seems like this is all going to be driven by the aircraft. Like once we have the aircraft and what it can do and the, all the different ones, then you shape the environment that it's going to, right. right? Like you wouldn't build, you wouldn't build roads before you had a car, right? Like, <laughs> no, we, we didn't. That's right. We didn't. No, like <laughs> right. you let the car, let the car make some, some ruts first and then go, oh, okay, <laughs> let's make it this wide. And then this, you know, put some shoulders on it. And that seems like the logical progression, but. And that's what, that's what happened in the United States, at least, right? They were, our highway system didn't really get going until after World War II. And they were, we were making cars in the, 10s, 20s, and 30s, <laughs> we, but we didn't really have mm-hmm. an, an interconnected highway system until the 1950s. It's, isn't it the Eisenhower highway system is what they call it? Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the way most things are developed, right? You got to have the, the 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 mobile piece first, and then all the infrastructure follows behind it because there's a way to make a little bit of profit off of it. That's going to be the same thing here, because I think one of the interesting pieces to this is, let's just say the vertical takeoff portion doesn't work where it is so energy intensive that you really can't do it. It shortens the range of these vehicles uh, where you really can't be efficient with them. So the next sort of the step down from that is short takeoff and landing. And I've seen some interesting uh, news about some of the short takeoff and landing devices and aircraft that they may be, may be stepping into that role. That role. And, and so why would you design an infrastructure if you don't have the vehicle design yet? Because you may need a slightly yeah. longer mm-hmm. runway, right? You may need it. Yeah. Well, and speaking of which, um, Joby Aviation has been approved by the U.S. Air Force. And, but Alan, this kind of raised an eyebrow with you. So, said so their prototype has been given uh, EVTOL airworthiness approval by the U.S. Air Force as part of their Agility Prime initiative. This is an article from AirMed, AirMed and Rescue.com. And, um, but there's going to be further airworthiness approvals in the future. So, is this distinct from the FAA? I mean, the Air Force can just have its own certification process, right? Um, yeah. How did, uh, this article, like I said, it, it raised a little bit of an eyebrow from you. Well, I think it blurs the line between FAA certification and Air Force certification. They give it airworthiness approval. And those, the FAA gave it airworthiness approval. I've read that or I've seen Air Force certification. 
those two words, those things conjoined, and that doesn't seem like a real thing, right? There's only one level of certification in terms of you and I being on an airplane, which is FAA certification. <laughs> that's that's the one in the United States. The Air Force, quote unquote, airworthiness doesn't mean anything besides that the Air Force is willing to evaluate the aircraft in terms of the, its applications to Air Force needs. But it sort of muddies the waters. If you're, if you're an outsider looking into this aerospace world and you just read that the Air Force has approved it, you think, oh, man, and then I can go out and start ordering an airplane. That's not a thing. You can't do that. The Air Force has no say in what the FAA does uh, mm-hmm. in terms of eVTOLs. So the whole thing is confusing. And I understand there's a there's an agility prime effort that's going off the Air Force, which is, is trying to encourage this electric vehicle technology to to speed up like if they can yeah. give it some funding and this, this is the beta technologies up in vermont bit is that they're getting air force support to push the project ahead faster than they could otherwise because investors right now are few and far between so it's hard for those companies to exist without having some outside in this case government military support to, to, to push it along but uh, let's make it absolutely clear that all these eVTOL aircraft are going to go through some level of FA certification, and it's going to take years, two, three, four, probably five years to get certified. And the, the Air Force announcement is something just directly related to the Air Force, and, and that's that. Gotcha, gotcha. So last on our list today, uh, Jaunt Air Mobility and Verdigo Aero are going to be collaborating on a hybrid or electric VTOL. So mm-hmm. they're going to use uh, Vertigo's hybrid electric diesel, which burns Jet A. Um, this seems interesting because, you know, John Air is a gyrocopter. Is that right? Uh, in my world, that's what I would call it. Yes. <laughs> it's, yeah. got this, it's got this rotating blade above it that moves. It rotates slowly. It's not a helicopter, uh, mm-hmm. but it provides lift. Think of it that way. Yeah. And so, I mean, do you feel like more companies are going to go down this road where just to differentiate themselves, they might do a hybrid, um, you know, jet fuel electric, or we talk about the hydrogen electric, or is this going to add a lot of weight to this? Is it going to add a lot of complexity to it? Um, And also, my other question for you is, how easy is it for companies just to partner like this? I mean, do engineers (laughs) butt heads a lot? Is it, it seems like there's like, it's a difficult thing, I, I would imagine. It's really difficult. Any two, if you try to, to, to <laughs> it's like uh, matter and antimatter on some level. <laughs> when you get near one another, there tends to be some sort of explosion happening. So the the issue when you when you grab two engineering organizations that are not necessarily headed in the same direction or um, have different personalities, and every organization has a personality, regardless of what human resources will tell you. There's a, there's a personality in, in those groups, and, and depending on what the leadership is, how well they're going to play together. So mm-hmm. uh, you will see, I'll give you the power plant manufacturer versus airframer story. So it, regardless of who's making the engines and who's making the airframe, there's not a love relationship there. And they rarely share a lot of data with one another. So if I'm building in myself this brand new jet and I'm talking to... Um, I don't want to pick anybody out in particular, but as a, a jet engine manufacturer, they will want to sell me a jet engine and it's going to cost me a fortune to buy it, but they're not going to tell me a lot about it or how it's designed. 
I can either take it or leave it. Mm. And that's what tends to happen is there's very little knowledge transfer that happens and the engineering approaches will be different. No doubt they're going to be different. So it's a very difficult task to overcome. The, the only way that I've seen it work is if those two organizations become one and they ask the people who don't like to play in the sandbox to leave. That's that's the only way that they come together. Because if you're if you're not uh, emotionally happy with the situation you're in because of this merger, any merger, and your best bet is to get out, and otherwise there's no point. So when yeah. this, so when when John see John's making the John's making the very conscientious decision up now because they really they haven't developed an airplane. They don't have an aircraft even put together that we've seen. We've only seen conceptual CAD models to speak of mm -hmm. in pretty videos, but you th would think that their architecture is relatively heavy and complex. They got this rotating wing over top and they got these electric propeller wing thing on the bottom. You would think that's going to be relatively complex and heavy, right? So yeah. someone must be sitting down and saying, we're going to need X amount of energy to get per mile if we want to really have a viable marketplace, we need to get to probably 200 miles, be my guess. Uh, and we can't do that with batteries, with the way this whole architecture system works. So we're going to need this other power plant system, this other energy system to feed the batteries and the electric motors. And we better have that as an option because otherwise we're not going to do it. So, so they're making the decision early. And this is what I was saying earlier that a lot of the other EV2Ls have a space for either hydrogen tank or or a jet a tank or something to make electricity from because they're probably going to need it to to do the missions they need to in the united states and to have relatively high numbers of sales in the united states they're going to need it yeah well i mean and the one thing i think that maybe hasn't been addressed that probably should is that it seems like a lot of these evtol companies are going after the same distance the same market right mm -hmm. this short air taxi because of battery so right. why not like and i don't know the the ultimate goal for jaunt but <laughs> maybe they just want to go after a longer range because again you're going to need maybe tiers like maybe joby crushes it at the 50 mile range and another company is great at 150 mile range and someone else is great at 300 mile range because they have a hybrid right we yeah. know that um yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna blank on this one at the moment but um, you know, there's a couple companies that are just swapping in the hydrogen electric engines for the purely yeah. uh, for internal combustion. So, yeah, right. Mm -hmm. right. So there well, could just be all different sectors and maybe they're, maybe they're thinking, okay, we've got a spot that we could, we could fit into that other people aren't coming for quite as much. That's, that's, that, that's all true. I, I, the, the issue revolves around and don't think aircraft is not a business. Aviation is a business, and the only way to stay, keep the doors open is to sell product. And the marketing and sales groups and all the surveys that are going on right now are looking at what is the potential marketplace for these products based on range. That's that's the argument. And if, if the aircraft doesn't go far enough, they won't have enough sales, they won't make enough money to keep the doors open. So what you're going to see in the United States is increasing range, uh, on those EVTLs to make sales to keep the doors open. That's what's going to happen. All right. Well, that'll do it for today's episode of Struck. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for listening. And please leave a review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Check out the WeatherGuard Lightning Tech YouTube channel for video episodes, full interviews, and short clips from the show. And follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at WGLightning. Tune in next Tuesday for another great episode on aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. Strike Tape, WeatherGuard Lightning Tech's proprietary lightning protection for radomes, provides unmatched durability for years to come. If you need help with your radome lightning protection, reach out to us at weatherguardaero.com. That's weatherguardaero.com.